Exciting news at This Week Health. Starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. Today on This Week Health. How do we improve the IT process? How can we speed this up? If there's a new AI algorithm, for instance, that comes out, it's probably going to take us at best six to nine months to go through our process, whether it's IT security, vetting of the data, all that kind of stuff. I think with the way things are going towards more algorithms, more external applications to lay over the top, how do we speed that process so that we don't do four or five things a year? We could do more. Thanks for joining us on This Week Health Keynote. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Special thanks to our keynote show sponsors, Sirius Healthcare, VMware, Transparent, Press Ganey, Sempris, and Veritas for choosing to invest in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. All right, today we have a special episode of Keynote. We have two CMIOs. I'm excited to talk about. We have Brett Oliver, CMIO for Baptist Health in Kentucky, and we have Jake Lancaster, CMIO for Baptist Memorial Healthcare in Tennessee, two different organizations. Jake recently moved into or has accepted the role of CMO, Chief Medical Officer for the Baptist Medical Group, and I'm excited to have this conversation. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. I appreciate you guys coming on. You've been a part of launching the IT Town Hall show, which is our new podcast on This Week Health. Have you done an interview yet where there's two people or have you only done one-on-ones? I've just done one-on-ones. Yeah, it's just uh, one-on-one for me, but I have two other podcast series that I host and we've done multiple guests before. Yeah, it's a, it's a little different dynamic doing two or even even three. One of the things I tell people when they come on is the more people that they're on, the more you just want to focus on your greatest hits. Like what's the one thing you want to get out? Because if you put four people on for a 45-minute podcast, you're only going to get to talk for 10 minutes. So it just reduces the amount of time you talk. I want to I optimize the amount of time that you guys are talking. So what's it like being a host for IT Town Hall? Jake, we'll start with you. I'm, I'm curious. You have some background in doing this. So what's it been like? Yeah, so I've, I guess I've done podcast hosting ever since I was in Clinical Informatics Fellowship. We started one just to kind of tell people about the fellowship itself. And it was it was interesting finding guests, bringing them on. I would say that's the, the hardest part to me is reaching out and, and bringing the guests on. But then once you're in there, I guess I've been doing it for two or three years now. It feels natural. It feels like a conversation. And it's it's pretty exciting to be able to create something and push it out there. Yeah. And that's one of the things I tell people when they come on the show. It's like, I, I want it to feel like we're sitting at Starbucks having a conversation and we just happen to turn on the the recorder and we're letting people to, to you know just drop in. Because that's one of the things that happens for you guys in your role is you have some great conversations throughout the day. It would be interesting, like in a football game, to mic you guys up through the day and just pull out clips of really cool conversations that you have. Uh, we'll, we'll figure out how to do that in the future. I don't, I don't know if that'll, that'll cut it. Brett, what about you? What's it like hosting the show? I like the mic up idea, by the way. I didn't have any experience before this, so it's been a little bit of, of nerves of getting started and just getting to that point where it is just a conversation. 
I think really once we get past the first question, then it's really becoming more just a conversation. In fact, I think you've, you've talked about it before, Bill, when a lot of times before we start rolling, I'm catching up with this friend or colleague of mine. And I'm like, we hold on, we need to stop. This is exactly what I want to get on camera. But no, I've enjoyed it. I think I've been pleasantly surprised. I, I think everyone I've reached out to has agreed to speak or agreed to come on and usually enthusiastically. So I, where I thought maybe that would be the, the challenge, it really hasn't. It's a little bit of administrative work on that side, but it's been great. So yeah, I've enjoyed it so far. Yeah, this this is now the podcast that I stream when I work out, which I, I, I love. I, I love the perspective. And I also like the fact that it's really close to where the work's getting done. So we get some great, great interviews. Brad, who have you interviewed so far? I've interviewed Andy Trescott, the sort of global lead at Accenture and other healthcare. I really enjoyed John League. He's the digital researcher at the advisory board. Aaron Meary, that I think has been on your show, Bill, after I realized that I was interviewing him. He's a friend of mine from the high tech committee, uh, CIO at Back South Jacksonville. Michael Adcock. I really liked Michael. Michael, I met on the high tech committee. He, he works right now on the payer side of things. I knew him first on the remote patient monitoring side with uh, University of Mississippi's telehealth program. But one of the things I took away from Michael that really hit home was the payer typically from Jake and my perspective, tends to be kind of the enemy, somebody we're working against, we got to pull things from. And, and while that still may be true in some instances, I also recognize if somebody's paying for it, Michael's going to have the data. And, and if we can foster that relationship, there's probably a more complete data set with that. I had Coleman Smith. Coleman is kind of a legislative regulation guru that, that we've had a relationship with at our organization for a number of years. So that was fun going through some of high-tech TEFCA, ADT requirements with him. Uh, he can he can make that, the driest stuff interesting there. And then uh, Michael Erickson, who is our CISO uh, and understanding. Again, a lot of times what I find is this triggers things where I'm weaker and don't have a great understanding to go uh, dig a little bit further and understand how that could uh, make my job a little bit better. Yeah, it, it is interesting in preparing the questions. You do have to have a base level of understanding of the topic. And sometimes... I've, I've asked you guys, people like yourselves who are, are doctors to do certain interviews for me because I sit there and go, you want to talk about what new device that's doing what in oncology? And, and I'm like, I am not the guy to do this interview. I mean, I'm, I just don't have the training. But that's very rare. A lot of times you can pick up just enough to ask the questions and uh, you're in the same boat as somebody who's listening to the show. It's the, you know, the first time they're really coming in contact with some of this information. Jake, how about you? Who have you interviewed so far? Done several. Won't go through through all of them, but I really tried to find current or former fellows that had worked on some interesting projects that they wanted to showcase. So these are clinical informatics fellows, so physicians that are doing current training in informatics. Some of the ones that were really interesting, talking Mark Yang. Uh, Mark Zhang, sorry, at Raymond Women's, who is over there, kind of digital innovation hub. He's doing some great work, always very smart guy, very knowledgeable about how to do innovation at an organization like that and, and make it sustainable. So I thought that was very interesting. Priya Ramaswamy, she is doing some really interesting work on a topic that I did not know 
nearly enough about, which is sustainability informatics, which she's using clinical decision support to decrease greenhouse gas emissions from. So a lot of these OR gases are worse greenhouse gases than CO2. And so she has an algorithm that they use and have spread through all the UC hospitals in California to decrease that, those gases, which also saves on cost too, but it also is helping with global warming. So that was a new area for me and something that I've not really heard talk about, which was fascinating. And then we had several talking about virtual health. So the virtualist, which is a new role, or it seems to be, is really becoming popular over the last couple of years with physicians that just do virtual care. And then uh, remote patient monitoring also has gotten obviously really big over the last couple of years of the pandemic. And then I had Tom Barnett on from my organization. He's our CIO. And so we just talked about several of the initiatives that we're working through as an organization. When I was CIO, had this concept and I started doing this, I learned a ton of things in the interview. What have you found that, I don't know, maybe it's a little surprising as being a host. Are, are you learning things as you're doing these interviews? I assume you are, because I, I learn a ton every time I do one. Absolutely. I, I've got, I usually take notes. And so it's kind of that combination. I'm trying to do a good job hosting, but at the same time, taking notes of something I need to go back and, and read about or learn more of for sure. Yeah, it's hard. Sometimes though, I, I certainly am very interested in the topic and I try to take in as much as I can while they're responding, but also a lot of the times I'm thinking about my next question. And so it gets really tough to, to retain it. But, you know, some of my other podcasts I actually do the editing for, and so I get to re-listen to it after it's done. And so I think I retain it a little bit better the second time. Most of my shows, I will listen to at least twice. I'll do the actual interview, but I have that same problem in that I'm thinking about what's next. And sometimes I'm not a, a good listener, but what I, as I've done this for a bunch of years, I was I'm five years into this now, I can almost do it with a blank page and it makes me a better listener. And I think it makes me a better interviewer because I can bounce off of some of the things that they're asking, but it just, I've been doing this for five years now. So it's, I think this is, I, I guess we can call it my profession now. Yeah, no, it, it certainly seems to make the conversation flow better if instead of having your pre-written questions, you actually ask questions based on what they just responded to. And so it kind of flows naturally like a conversation. I had probably early on where I was just writing out every single question word for word and only going based on those. It's a little definitely less conversational and a little more formal. Let's transition to your day jobs. One of the things we try to do with the show is give you guys as much support as possible. I mean, it's essentially it's you reaching out to somebody setting up a time, getting on a Zoom call, recording it, and then you just give it to us. We produce the whole thing. We try to make it as not cumbersome as possible, but you guys do have like uh, real full-time jobs, CMIO for, for two health systems, one in Kentucky, one in Tennessee. There's a lot going on. Jake, we'll start with you. Like what's, what's top of mind right now for CMIOs in healthcare? It's always been the case, but maybe more so over the pandemic years with burnout rising and staffing shortages. So how can we reduce the administrative burden on our physicians and providers and working a lot more with the, the nursing staff as well to try to decrease some of their burden. So we've done all the classic things like decrease 
alerts. So that that was we made a lot of progress early on. We had a million uh, a million alerts a month across our system, and we've brought that down um, to just slightly under a hundred thousand, which you know is a huge improvement. Most of those were going to nursing staff and had never been looked at, and so we got a group and were able to take that down, but. Nurses are still spending way too much time in the charts, and so helping with that group to really redesign some of that that workflow. And then for physicians over the last couple of years, it's been with more patients moving and getting more comfortable with the patient portals, just that volume of messages that are coming in. There's been a lot of articles written about it, but we are trying to really stand up and have a stronger uh, process in place so that uh, we can have the ancillary staff, the pools respond to those messages without having to involve the physician because they're just getting overwhelmed. Could I ask something on that? On the alerts that you decreased from the million to 100,000, did you find that a lot of them were just superfluous, duplicative messages, or did you have to, as part of that group, did you have your risk safety approval person there to say, listen, there's only so many things we can look at. I know this is important, but is it as important as this? How did it, I'm just curious, like what was the dynamic in those meetings? So it's amazing how great our, I think our culture has evolved on this over the last couple of years. We now have our chief risk officer saying, we don't need to add another alert. All those alerts get overridden anyways. And so it's, it's worthless to put it out there. We're going to fix this a different way. And so once we had that switch, it's gotten so easy all you have to do is show them the data about the override rates, how often they're firing. They, you show them that they're not being acted on and there's a better way to do this. And some of them we've had to leave in place, but a lot of them, most of them, we've been able to at least tweak. So working with our analysts on ways that we can just make it fire for the right person. It doesn't have to fire for everybody. And moving them to a different, maybe location in the chart, reducing the numbers that pop up right when you go into the chart. It's been, we had a lot of great success early on. We've sustained a lot of that success. And yeah, I'm most proud of that kind of culture change within our risk and quality group. That's fantastic. We've been doing something similar with our in-basket and does this message need to go to the position and, and doesn't need to go to anybody, quite frankly. And it's nice to start seeing that as well from our end to him to have someone agree that this could go to a folder that auto deletes after 30 days. So someone could see it if they want to, but they don't have to, they don't have to sign off on it. So thanks for letting me interject there. No, please. I mean, we, we have three hosts on the show. You guys might as well just start asking each other questions, especially if you can learn from each other. I'm sure others could learn. The part of that question I didn't hear the answer to was, were a lot of those alerts duplicative or was it just too many? I wouldn't say, well, some of them, fired and then we'd get dismissed and they would fire again. So we had to add some lockout periods that were not there. And, but most of them are just individual alerts. They don't overlap in any way, but there was maybe better ways that we had now to deal with the issue that they were trying to solve to begin with. Some of them were just out of the box alerts that came with the system and were not even based on science anymore. And so we could just turn those off once we got, you know, some sign off from our clinical teams and it was great. How many years past go live are you on your system? I was not here when we went live, but I think it was sometime 2012, 2013. All right. So you, so you've been optimizing for quite some time to get to this point. 
Fantastic. Brad, what's top of mind for you? As far as for CMIOs, I think it really depends on your organization. Like we're going to head down to Jacksonville and give Aaron a little help at their epic transition, their go live at the end of July. So you've got some organizations that, I mean, obviously it's not the only thing, but they're still transitioning over to a system-wide EMR. They're changing EMR. We're not quite as mature as Jake. We've been live for six years now uh, on our sort of system-wide EHR epic. But I think there's been a lot of emphasis on what Jake talked about in terms of burnout and, and provider efficiency in nursing. That's I think nursing has been an area that, at least for us, has been neglected until recently to really look at their workflows and what can we do. We've got an epic mastery team that goes to our physicians and helps just ongoing year after year, help them become more efficient with new applications and things. We don't have that for nurses. And, and granted, it's a much broader group and requires more resources, but we're trying to address that. We've had a lot of legislative things in the last 12 to 15 months, right? You know, information blocking in Kentucky. I don't know if you guys are aware, but we had a house bill. We had some legislation passed just last month that said, we ha- essentially, we're going to hold pathology now for 72 hours. But the, the way the bill was written, it says, you, you must hold the result for 72 hours if there's a significant likelihood of finding a malignancy. Okay, that, how do you code for that, right? And so from a radiology test, if it's a PET scan, follow up some chemotherapy, probably. If it's an x-ray of your hand, no. And so to think to go through all those different you know, procedure codes and group them has been a challenge. So a lot of work on things like that. And then I think for us, it's also, and it's probably common across, but looking how do we improve the IT process how can we speed this up? If there's a new AI algorithm, for instance, that comes out, it's probably going to take us at best six to nine months to go through our process, whether it's IT security, vetting of the data, all that kind of stuff. I think with the way things are going towards more algorithms, more external applications to lay over the top, how do we speed that process so that we don't do four or five things a year? We could do more if operationally we can support it. So that's something that I've been really thinking about. I think, but probably top of mind right now for us is labor costs and efficiencies. That's really going to eat into resources available to do the things I just mentioned. All right, we'll get back to our show in just a minute. I want to tell you about the podcast that I am the most excited about right now that I am listening to as often as I possibly can. And that is the town hall show that we launched on the community channel, This Week Health Community, and it airs on Tuesdays and Thursdays. What I've done is I have essentially recruited these great hosts who are coming in and they're tapping people in their networks and having conversations with them about the things that are frontline kind of stuff. So it's it's technical deep dives, it's hot button issues, it's tactical challenges, it's all the stuff that is happening right there where you live on a daily basis. We have some great hosts on this show. We have Charles Boise, who's a a data scientist, Craig Richardville, Lee Milligan, Reed Steffen, who are all CIOs. We have Jake Lancaster, Brett Oliver, who are CMIOs. We have Mark Weissman, who is a former CMIO and host of the CMIO podcast, and now a CIO at Title Health. And we also have the incomparable Sue Shade, who is fantastic. And I'm, I'm really excited about the fact that she's tapping into her network and having some great conversations as well. I'd love for you to tune into these episodes. I am learning a ton myself. You can subscribe on our community channel, This Week Health Community. You can do that on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google, on Stitcher, you name it. We're out there 
and you can subscribe there and start having a listen yourself. All right, let's get back to our show. I was at a conference and there was three CFOs on the panel and somebody asked a very long question about essentially what's top of mind, that kind of stuff. And they had like three parts to the thing. And one of the CFOs, half joking, half serious said, okay, all I heard was blah, 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 nurse shortage, blah, 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 traveling nurses, blah, 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 wage inflation. That's all I heard. And he was half joking, half serious. He's just like, you, you don't realize how acute this issue is and how much we're thinking about it. And I assume that's been dumped somewhat on the CMIO's plate to say, hey, look, burnout's a part of that. Job satisfaction is part of that. EMR usage is part of that. Reducing alerts is part of that. I mean, the satisfaction amongst nurses, we're seeing some strikes start to hit across the country in various places. So it's starting to bubble up to the thing. Is that being dropped? Uh, I mean, not solely on the CMIO, but is that being dropped on your plate as something you need to deal with? For me, not so much. So I think I've injected myself and our team more than it's been dropped on us per se. It's it's hard. You've got traveling nurses that it's not their organization and it's just human nature to maybe not be as engaged or invested into what happens. And so learning the EHR, learning those workflows, learning about the warnings, how to set them up efficiently. I'm not going to be here in a month probably. So why would I want to you know, set all that up? I think that kind of thing that drops the training team, training and support team runs up through me. So I think we've seen that. I don't know, Jake, have you, have they dropped that on you? You know, it's certainly a shared um, responsibility and something that I, I work with a, a large group as as a part of. So we had a we have our efficiency engineers follow some of our nurses around and find where they're spending their time. And I'm, I was part of that project is still ongoing. We haven't solved it yet, unfortunately. And a large part of what they're doing is spent in the EHR. And so I also worked with our our nursing informatics leaders uh, that are driving the work and um, to reduce those alerts, remove flow sheet rows that they don't really need to document on, and just helping them and thinking of ways that they can reduce it, but they're driving the work. I'm just kind of helping and advising or, or offering suggestions as I see fit. But we, we have this nursing redesign task force that is looking at alternative models of care. So you know, maybe having a pharmacy tech or a pharmacist do more of delivering the medications. What can we do with automation? What can we do with expanding, you know, the role of our patient care techs and such? So it's, which are all these other positions that I just mentioned are also in short supply. So it's, it's a hard, but I am involved in that work. It's certainly not, I wouldn't say it's dropped on me, but I'm part of the team that's looking for solutions. From a documentation standpoint, I've seen Dale Sanders talk a lot about this. How much of it is, uh, the, the, I'm, I'm not going to use the right word here. I was going to say superfluous, and that, that would probably be the wrong word. But how much of it is driven by regulatory that isn't necessarily necessary for clinical outcomes or to drive clinical outcomes? It's more just for regulatory compliance and measurement and potentially some payment, that kind of stuff. How much of the documentation do you think still falls into that category? So are you talking about for physicians, for nurses, for who? Well, we were talking about nurses. I was more talking in general. So, I mean, is it different for both groups? Well, there's a lot of overlap, but so we've been, I think along with everybody trying to reduce documentation across the system. 
We started with physicians with the new E&M coding changes that occurred last year on the ambulatory side, which essentially reduced what was required for billing for these services. And there's been a study that was done a year later looking at this, and there's been no changes in the length of documentation. I personally, you know, led an effort to do this at our organization. I met the only way that I really got traction was meeting one-on-one with individual physicians and adjusting their templates themselves, my, myself, you know, it's because everybody has their own. And so a lot of, I guess, different themes came up out of that. So some were happy to reduce documentation. It didn't reduce any time spent in the chart. All we were able to do is reduce what was automatically generated within our EMR. And so it was hard to convince them that this was necessarily something that was going to save them time when it's just auto-generated, it, it dumps in there, and they spend the same amount of time creating their actual impression and plan. Inpatient side, it's it's a little bit different. Those have not changed yet. I think they're going to change in January of next year, potentially. But I imagine it's going to be the same thing where it's a lot of what's in there was initially built for, you know, billing and payment. A lot of it is quality. A lot of it is regulatory that we have to put in there. And that's kind of where the amount, the highest amount of time comes in, I, I think, is with some of the quality documentation. The, the total length is a lot of it's driven by just our templates that we started out with to meet some of these billing requirements that aren't necessarily relevant anymore, at least for the outpatient side. And just a lot of old habits die hard and it's hard to get them to switch. On the nursing side, yes, I would say a lot of what we're seeing was initially put there by maybe legal or risk or quality, trying to capture something because, um, you know, if you need to capture you know, certain quality metrics on every patient you admit, you're going to add that to the nurse screening questionnaire. And that just keeps getting longer and longer. I would say a lot of that maybe come from joint commission type work that comes out. I know every time we have a survey, we have, you know, to add another <laughs> flow sheet road to nursing intake, it seems, or, or some other component that, that they're being added to. And so it's, it's a combination of both regulatory billing and very, very little of it, unfortunately, is telling the narrative of what is actually going on with the patient that supports the clinical care, I would say. It's interesting. Uh, Brett, would you add anything to that? or I would just maybe add a, uh, a little bit that I, I also have colleagues that these are some that I think we can help, Jake and I and our teams can help, because they're not very efficient in the EHR. And so what do they do? Every note is a mini chart. Yeah. I'm going to bring in everything. So next time I see the patient, I've got this mini chart in my last note, mini, and it's 12 pages long. But, yep. and then there's that, as Jake said, the two sentences that I really want to read to see what happened to that patient. Those are the most recalcitrant, yep. difficult people to get to change. Because I remember before the EHR, I would get a 10 or 15 page letter in the mail from them on their consult note. That's just the way they practice everything from they had strep throat when they were 18 to it's, it's, those are the toughest ones there. And I would agree with him that everybody's quality metric just is that one. It's just that one little thing, Bill. I just want you to check this box. It said you, you counseled them on smoking or whatever it might be, but everybody's box and everybody's little nugget ends up this humongous pile on a nurse. And when they request that, one of the things that I'm trying to do is when one of those quality items or metrics are presented, number one, is there something we can automatically do? Can we pull this from a different area? That's probably the most important thing. But then just from a cultural shift to say, 
okay, here's the 67, literally 67 things that this person already has to do on admission of this patient. You're going to be 68. Are you okay with that? Is, or is there something we can take off this list? Because it, we've got to shift that. It's, it's the path of least resistance, whether it's a medication warning that we were talking about or a quality metric, put it in the EHR, force them to do it. That's easy on the operational people, right? Just make it happen. I think that it's, it's more challenging to say, is there another way that you can get that? Do we need to add an FTE that's going to ask these questions or counsel the patients, whatever, whatever it might be? But yeah, it's, it's an issue. I was excited when those new E&M changes came out and then kind of reality hit after a few months, like this isn't going anywhere, unfortunately. I, I just went to my daughter's graduation down at Baylor and, and a whole row of people got their master's and uh, a couple of PhDs in organizational change management. And my wife leans over and goes, what's that fluffy degree? I'm like, that degree is everything. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you think the CIO does, does technology work? They don't do technology work. They do organizational change management. What you guys just described is organizational change management. It's like, how do you get a group of people that have practiced medicine in a certain way for decades to adopt an EHR, to utilize it in the most effective way? How do you get people to do a common intake form? How do you get them to do scheduling in a common way so that you can digitize it and, and make it a digital a workflow. I mean, all these things, It the job ends up being more of a, I've said this time and time again, more of a leadership job than a technology job. Oh, 100%. I, I agree with that. And just to go off what you just said, finding a, a common way to do a certain thing, a, a standard way. So like you said earlier, we've been live on Epic for close to a decade or more now. And one of the things that was promised with it with all these new HRs, almost any HR is, oh, you can customize it so much. You can do anything you want. Everybody's got their own template. Everybody's got their own order set. Everybody's got their own workflow. Every screen is personalized. You can, but then when you step back 10 years later, you're like, oh, I really wish there's just one way that you could write a node or, or one way that you could do this one workflow that was the best practice and standard. And I think a lot of places are trying to get to that, but it's hard when the product is built on the versatility and the customization and personalization that, that is out there. And so it's, it's a challenge. And I think you have to remember how we trained, at least I'm older than you, Jake, but like when, when we trained, we're trained to be this island that stands by itself. Two in the morning, we take care of it. There's nobody to call. There's no one to take care of it. And that mindset is, well, I know what's best. I'm going to create my note the way I want it. It's not just kind of this IT outlet. Back when you had paper charts, I bet it was the same way. We just didn't have visualization into it. Yeah. It, there's part of me that wishes the EHR could only handle so many order sets, right? Hey, the max is 100. Sorry, we can't go to 101. Let's, let's talk through this a little bit. I remember meeting with my CMIO. He was in charge of getting the order sets right before our, our go live. And uh, I was complaining about something someday. And he said, it was one of those, you think your job's hard. You should see my job. And I sat in on one, just one of those meetings where they were trying to get the order sets right. That was, that was the most brutal meeting I think I've sat in, in, in this six or so years. And these are colleagues and they, but they practice, I'm not, I'm not saying they practice medicine so differently, but they have different viewpoints on what is the best care and how do you go about it? And that sort of dictates how you build those, those order sets. And it was, it was, I, I have the utmost respect for him driving the consensus around a lot of those order sets. Now, I'd like to go back 
I think if we're eight years later since we did that go live, I'll bet you those order sets have ballooned. We consolidated significantly, but I'll bet you they ballooned up again. All right. Hey, since I have you guys here, is, is the role evolving or changing at all? I mean, we've talked about this optimization piece. I've talked to some CMIOs at, at conferences lately, and some of them are picking up some of the engagement digital side, either, either on the clinician side, engaging patients, or even going as far as to help select technology and that kind of stuff. Are you seeing that, that evolution as well? I think what's interesting about that role is you would think after a couple of decades, it would have consolidated down to a, a one pager and here's the job description. And at least when I talk to our colleagues across the country, it, it really varies by your organization. For instance, with us, now that we're six, seven years post live, I'm not really in that at the elbow support kind of role. I have teams that, that do that and I'm engaged in what, how we're going to address things and what are our projects. But for us, we don't have a chief digital officer or a chief innovation officer. And those are areas that I just have found interesting and have just naturally drifted in, kind of partnering with our chief strategy officer and some of the digital health. Well, the digital health kind of reports up through me. So yeah, I've been engaged in the, those technologies and I really get excited about that while still maintaining the responsibility over the EHR optimization. But that's kind of molded where I know some of my colleagues, they're still doing some of the at the elbow, really getting into the, the, the weeds with that. So I, I think it really varies on your organization. I don't know. How, how about you, Jake? Yeah, I would say it varies based on the organizational need. And so for me, it, it's changed. I've been with this organization for three years now. And so in the beginning, it started off with optimization was our big focus and never really went away. Then when the pandemic hit, we had a greater need for analytics and visualization of data, which was a skill set that I had. And so I took on a larger role with that front. And as it seems as with, with burnout rising and nursing turnover, and like we just said, now it's going back and swinging back to a little bit more optimization, finding different ways to enhance those workflows. And the analytics is not it's still important, but it's, it's not something they're asking me for every day, like they were. And so it just kind of varies with, with, you know, with you know, how the organization is, what they need, I think at the time, and you got to have a skill set that can support it. So CMIO role, if I were to simplify it, is it the intersection of data, the EHR and the clinician is that that's traditionally what it's been. And then it's driven by if you're, if you're Providence, 70, 80 hospitals and umpteen billion, you probably have a staff that's doing the elbow support, but essentially the role probably evolves if you're that big. And if you are, I mean, you guys, I would put you guys in the, in the mid category, the Baptist Memorial is a billion and a half Baptist, Kentucky. What are you guys about? About four. About four. Yeah. And even that's in the, in the mid category. Now you see atrium and advocate coming together. That's going to be 16 billion. And the top 25, I think are 8 billion or more in terms of net patient revenue. So that's sort of that mid category. So you guys are really describing what the CMIO role looks like. It's, it's one of those that is driven by, by need and maturity of the organization. I, I, I would, I would guess it's, Brad, I'm curious during the pandemic, did your role change pretty dramatically for for a period of time? 
Yes, I think I was definitely more in the weeds than than I am now uh, in terms of how things because you were rolling things out so quickly. You couldn't count on the team to go through your normal processes and, and sleep at night knowing these things have been looked at. You were jumping in and saying, "I'll pilot it. Let's go. You know, turn it on. Let's try it. I'll do it. Let's go." So yeah, absolutely. Well, let me ask you both. I'm giving you both opportunity for two things. One is I, I want to hear what you're most proud of that your team has accomplished. Something that people who are listening to this might hear and go, that's interesting. I, I'd, I'd love to be able to do that. And then I'm going to, the closing question is going to be, uh, I'd love to hear some forward leaning kind of stuff. What do you think is going to happen in the next three to three to 10 years? I'll come back to that question. Let's start with uh, Brett, we'll start with you. What, what are you most proud of that your health system has been able to accomplish over the last couple of years that you think your peers might benefit from hearing about? Well, it may be more esoteric. My answer may be more esoteric than providing a direct benefit. I mean, I'm certainly proud of some of the discrete things we were doing. I was just sitting in on a lung cancer screening meeting this morning where we talked about even during the pandemic, we increased our lung cancer screening rates. Now in Kentucky, we've got a lot of work to do there, but we, we screened, we're fourth in the nation in lung cancer screening rates. And that increased during the pandemic. So there's some discrete victories that I, I really like. Of course, all the all the digital services that every organization stood up so quickly. I think though what I'm most proud of is the way we were able to respond to it. If you had laid this out in a, in a word problem and said, here's what's gonna happen. And what do you think the chances are you standing these things up in three days, six days, five days and, and successful? Not a chance. Are you kidding me? Just the legal review alone is gonna take six weeks and then we're gonna have to, not at all. To see the laser focus in that cultural response to the patient needs. I think that's what I was most proud of. Um, so I, it's not, uh, it may not be the, uh, the sexiest answer in terms of a follow-up. Oh, I can do that on my own, but that, that was really neat to see. And then the question becomes, how do you maintain that? You can't, you can't be quite that laser focused. You've got more to do, but I think as an organization, we oftentimes sit back and say, you know what, we're doing too much. Maybe we should do less and do it better and do it faster and more efficiently. That was going to be my follow-on. You, you anticipated my follow-on question, which is how have you been able to, to maintain that? I, I, the sense of urgency is never going to be as high as it was during the pandemic. The focus is probably never going to be as, I mean, we dropped everything and said, boom, this is what we're going to do. And again, that's never going to be as great. But is there an appetite within your health system to identify a few areas and keep that sense of urgency and that focus? I think it's something that we have to continually bring up and bring forward. The analogy I would give is on primary care, everybody wants us to do something with the patient in the office. There's a hundred different quality metrics, all this kind of stuff. Where we've had the most success is when we said, we're going to do five. And, and we'd have a group come together and pick the five. But if you're six, it's not going to be the top priority. If you're seven, and that, those are hard conversations to have because six, seven, 10, they're not bad things. They're still really important to patient care, but you can only do so much. And so let's address those five. A year later, look at that. We're killing it. That's fantastic. Let's go to another five. And, and kind of moving forward, but reminding people that their ideas, their priorities aren't bad. They're just, we have to prioritize. IT, I think, gets that better than almost any department because we're the limiting resource for a lot of these projects. And I get tired of answering my colleagues. Like, well, IT said no about this. IT did not say no. That's not in our job description. We don't say no. We might have been the ones that told you no because there was no money or there was no you know, project bandwidth, but we're there to support everybody else. So I think, I think it has to come from senior leadership to say, 
to keep that focus. And these are going to be the priorities. At least that's how it's worked best, like in our medical group, for instance, with those quality metrics. Jake, what are you most uh, proud of? Do you think your peers might benefit from? Yeah, we've talked about it already, but the, the focus on the reduction in burden over the last couple of years, and really it's the mindset shift from some of our senior leaders within the organization where they're now talking about how to reduce this, this administrative burden you know, for our nurses and our physicians, the weekly meetings that in prior years probably just would never really bubble to the surface for them. I mean, physician burnout, nursing burnout was, has always been you know, talked about, but not uh, the hyper intense focus that it seems to have now where it's a priority for the organization. It should have been in the past, but it's just a, a hyper intense focus now. And so that reduction in alerts that I, I described before is, is one piece of something that I'm really proud that we've been able to do as an organization over the past uh, couple of years. And um, really looking forward to continuing that work over the next couple of years. It's, it's only really beginning and we got a lot more work to do. And I'm just happy that our organization is, is supporting that effort and wanting us to, to assign a dollar figure to that administrative burden reduction. That is something that they're we're reporting out at some of our cost reduction meetings is, you know, we reduced this amount of burden. It saved this nurse one, two minutes. What is that in actual real dollars? And so it's been good to have those conversations and, and realize that yes, this, this amount of time that we're putting on the providers and clinicians is costing us money and it's the right thing to do. All right. Quick, quick exit question. What are you looking at that you think is going to impact healthcare next three years? And what's maybe a little bit more forward leaning 10 years out that you're saying we're keeping an eye on these things? So three years, I still think it's going to be staffing shortages. I don't think we're getting out of that in the next year. And so what can we do as a you know system in healthcare to reduce reduce those shortages or make them less acute through automation, through workflow process improvements, I think it's going to still be the main focus over the next three years that we can have the most impact. And three, 10 year cycle, we're still going to see a lot more stuff move out of the hospital into the outpatient setting and how can technology continue, which is already doing remote patient monitoring, hospital at home. How can we augment and take care of patients uh, where they really want to be taken care of outside of outside of the hospital. Yeah, that's fantastic. Brett, you get the last word. Three uh, and 10 years. Yeah, I would agree with what Jake had said. I think also, I think we'll see a better use of data. We've been so focused on the exchange of data that the quality of that exchange, I think, has been neglected. And so putting insights into workflows, easier access to clinical trials, things like that, that I think better use of the data will happen over the next few years. I think we'll see a continued expanded use of voice, which will help some of the things that Jake was talking about in terms of burnout and efficiencies. I think it's it's interesting that I'm not supposed to text and drop. Usually the CEO is not taking minutes of a meeting because they're distracted that you're not, multitasking doesn't work. Yet Jake and I are supposed to sit in front of a patient, listen to your your the dialogue, start creating a differential diagnosis, a treatment plan. And at the same time, let me get my quality metrics down and create a note. So I think the more we can use voice, the more cognitive burden decrease that we'll see. And, and I agree with Jake, a continued emphasis outside of our walls, whether that be remote patient monitoring, 
self-care modules that a patient can assign themselves. They don't need me to do that for med adherence and things along those lines and just care from home, whether it's delivery of medications by drones, whatever that patient experience, that's the one thing that the, the pandemic has done in a positive direction to kick us in the seat of the pants is raising that patient expectation of the experience, how we got away with you know, being on hold for 30 minutes to schedule an appointment with your primary care provider when you can schedule anything else online. I don't, I don't know, but we don't anymore. That, that floor is raised. And I think we'll continue to see that patient experience blossom. Yeah. I've been talking to some people about voice and I, I think we think it's on a, a linear curve, getting better, getting better, getting better. Some of the new AI technologies that they are working with, I think we're going to see an exponential curve on that. It's really interesting what they're doing with video. It's really interesting what they're doing with audio. And uh, I, I hope we will see some of that come to fruition in the next two to three years. So you guys don't have to type a note while you're listening to the patient. That would be fantastic. Gentlemen, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for your participation in town hall. I also want to thank you for your time today and, and sharing your experience. I look forward to seeing you guys in person someday. Yeah, that would be good. What a great discussion. If you know someone that might benefit from a channel like this, from these kinds of discussions, go ahead and forward them a note. I know if I were a CIO today, I would have every one of my team members listening to a show like this one. It's conference level value every week. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast, everywhere. Go ahead, subscribe today. Send a note to someone and have them subscribe as well. We want to thank our keynote sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Those are Sirius Healthcare, VMware, Transparent, Press Ganey, Sempris, and Veritas. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.